is week number eight in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter two, and looking at the interpretation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel uh, gave to him, that Daniel explained. You remember that this, uh, this whole dream is about an image of, uh, that was glorious, it was uh, ominous, it was um, illumined, very bright, and it was frightening, it was uh, daunting to look on it. And so Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel to speak the dream and to interpret it. And you remember that the dream is all about an image that stood before Nebuchadnezzar, a head of gold, um, arms and a chest of silver, uh, a midsection and thighs of bronze, and then legs of iron and feet that had iron mixed with clay, common clay. And these represent kingdoms that were to come in the future. The first being, uh, Daniel made it very plain, spoke to Nebuchadnezzar saying uh, about his um, full reign of all the things that existed at the time when he uh, was in reign. And so the head represented Nebuchadnezzar, actually the, uh, the dynasty, the reign of Babylon. And then in in real quick order, he talks about two other kingdoms that are going to come. One that would come after Nebuchadnezzar that would be inferior to his kingdom. And then a third kingdom that would come after that one that would rule the whole earth. And then he talks about a fourth kingdom. And in that kingdom, he gives more details. And we were kind of reviewing um, history, human history, and matching that up to what um, this image are represented. And we said that the first is obviously Babylon because Daniel very clearly speaks of that. The next major world power that came to be was the Medo-Persian um, Empire, um, that being the one that's represented by the, the chest and the arms of silver. Those two kingdoms didn't last very long. The Babylonian kingdom lasting for less than 70 years, really, about 65 years. The Medo-Persian um, kingdom lasting for about 110 years. So very quickly you get through two kingdoms. The third kingdom, which lasted longer, that came after the Medo-Persians, actually defeated the Medo-Persian kingdom, would have been that of Greece. And after Greece had existed for a while, then Alexander the Great came on uh, the scene and expanded the reign of Greece greatly, really from both the western and the eastern part of the world at that time. And all of that became the kingdom of Alexander the Great. And then when Alexander died in 323 B.C., um, then that kingdom got split into four kingdoms, the east, west, north, and the south. And those kingdoms lasted all in all for about 400 years, some of them uh, being put down earlier than others, but the last one not being put down until about 30 B.C. And at that time, um, they were defeated by the Romans entirely. The Romans had already um, defeated the western and the, and the northern kingdoms, they then took the eastern and the southern kingdoms around the time before Christ was born. 
And so Rome then dominated the world at that point. And that's kind of where we left off last week was in, discuss, in discussing this reign of Rome and what that indicates and how that fits into um, the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw that Daniel interpreted. And it's that kingdom that lasts the fourth kingdom that's named in which most of the detail that Daniel gave is given because he talks um, for extensively about not only the legs but about the feet and about the toes on the feet that are made of uh, clay mixed with iron or iron mixed with clay. Um, and so that's kind of where I want to pick up this morning. Um, but we'll go ahead and read the next verses that come. And then I want to talk about a few things that we didn't talk about last week and give you some perspectives that people have about these passages and then some of the things that have been in my mind for a while now as I've been looking at this and thinking about it and studying it. And so I want us to go back and talk a little bit about this kingdom of Rome. But we'll pick up and, and read where last week we left off in chapter 2 and verse 43. So we'll go ahead and, and begin reading in um, verse 44 and read down through the, the end of the chapter, which is not very far so in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, there the scripture reads, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request, request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So you can see ultimately Daniel is very successful in this, but before we move on and, and talk um, about the divine kingdom, I want us to go back and talk about some of the things that we were finishing with last time when you talk about Rome. Um, you understand that the Christian church for many years um, it's been basically the consensus that this fourth kingdom, that's not named, is the kingdom of Rome. That's been the interpretation for hundreds of years. Um, most of the conservatives today would say that it is the kingdom of Rome, although I hear winds of, among people that I respect greatly that maybe that's not exactly right. And so I want to talk about this some and put some things uh, into your mind that I've been thinking about and just we'll have a different perspective 
Because as we move forward, not only through Daniel, but ultimately where we head in some of the prophecies and ultimately in Revelation, these things play a significant role in what your perspective is over what Daniel interpreted this dream to be. Now, you understand that Daniel doesn't give us any names of any of the kingdoms, because he doesn't know them, except for Babylon. That one he very expressly states, because that's the one that's in power at the time in which this dream comes and in which Daniel interprets it. Of course, he doesn't know the future. He just knows what is indicated for the future. But we can look at history, and it's pretty clear that after uh, Babylon came Medo-Persia, then came the Greeks, then came the Romans, and then came nobody, really, since the Roman Empire. We'll talk more about that as we, we go forward here. What I want to talk about is what happened in the Greek, I mean, in the Roman kingdom. You remember we talked about this last week, that in 329 A.D., hundreds of years later, after the kingdom had been established, the Emperor Constantine moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople. And that once he did that, then most of the people left Rome and went to Constantinople. Such that by the time you get to 350 or so, only 20 years after the capital was moved, there's a million people in Constantinople, but there's only about 30,000 left in Rome. And as a result of that, we talked about this last week, that Rome was repeatedly overrun by barbaric tribes. And we even went to the detail last week to be able to name the ten tribes that most, most studies of history name out. And they're very clear, there's good history, there's good documentation on what happened in the area of Rome during this time after Constantine left. And so there's good detail of all of that. And there were ten tribes, and we looked at the origin of those tribes, four of them coming from Germanic backgrounds, others coming from different areas around Rome, um, but all overrunning and barbaric tribes, unlearned, certainly not carrying on the Greek culture, um, basically ravaging the city of Rome. It's ultimately burned. And Rome, when Constantine left, this is the way the European history develops out, was given to the Pope at that time. So the Pope had vast powers, um, was um, the known leader of that area, but they basically could exercise no power at all because of the barbaric tribes. And then over time, um, France overruns Rome and begins to install some order to the chaos that was there until ultimately, a couple of hundred years later, you have Charlemagne coming on the scene and the Pope declaring that he's the new emperor of the empire, and that's where you get the Holy Roman Empire. It begins with Charlemagne of France. And so, and then you go on through history, and ultimately um, you have the Catholic Church coming in, and, and all the known history uh, beginning in about 800 that kind of leads up to where we're at in the world today. 
And so that's all well documented, all well understood. But the Roman Empire itself at that time would have been based and through those hundreds of years over in Constantinople and lasted for another thousand years after going all the way up until 1400s of basically still ruling and reigning out of Constantinople, uh, having two branches, one mainly in Syria and one mainly in Egypt. Those two branches being really the, the following of two of the four kingdoms that developed out of Alexander the Great's kingdom, one to the west, which would have been the one in Syria, one to the south, which would have been the one in Egypt. And so that continued on with those people being dominated by Constantinople and the Roman Empire, which ultimately is named the Byzantine Empire. But it's all the same empire. It's all the same people. They all came from Rome and were based in Constantinople. So that's kind of the way that world history lays out. And since the time of Rome and their reign, which... um, you could say didn't, you know, until the four or five hundreds, there's been no dominant world power who reigned the whole world. Okay, there's, there, I mean, you can look at history, there have been people who had great influence. It would have started with France, and then it would have been Spain, and then ultimately it would have been the British, um, who had great, vast influence over the world. You can look at the world today and the nations that exist and the language they speak are based upon the influence of those three nations and when they explore the rest of the world. And so there have been nations that had influence and had power, but none that have ever dominated the world. So all of the kingdoms that have, and I believe that ever will, dominate the world in a, in a, in a way that they control what's going on, are listed in this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. All of them have been listed. All the ones that have ever existed were listed, and I believe all the ones that ever will exist are listed in this one image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. So he saw not only the, the future of the history for his present time up until Christ, but all the way to the end of time. And you can look at how the world exists today. There is no dominant world power. I mean, there are people who are stronger than others, sure, but there's nobody who rules the whole earth. And, and the more we go through history, the more fragmented it becomes and the more powerful um, nations become. And so, you know, today you can look at the world and we're... Um, you'll see the G7, right? The seven significant economic powers of the world come together as a summit, basically coming out of what used to be known as the G6, but now has grown into the G7. Or you can see what other people call the political eight, which would be the Russians added to the G7 because they're not part of the G7. And, you know, the G7 is going to meet, I think it's June 7th and 8th of this year. So that shows how fragmented the, the control of the world is. And certainly in areas, there are people who have influence and power, but no one has overall dominating influence 
like you would have had with the Greeks or the Romans. No, nobody has that kind of influence anymore. Um, the world's too big. There are too many people who are powerful. And there's always changes going on. So that's one of the major points that I want to make is that as you go through history and you look at ancient history or you look at where we're at today, there is no world power that's not listed in the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Now, does that make you agree with that? You disagree with that? Go ahead, Chris. What about other civilizations like the Indus Valley civilization? I mean, you, you talk sure. about the known world, but there were other like the Incans and the Mayans and the Aztecs. And no doubt. So, how does that fit in with what you're saying with the known world? I mean, the world there. Well, we know about those those societies and those peoples now, right? Because they were discovered later. But if you look at it from, from Daniel's perspective and from the biblical perspective, they didn't know about those peoples. So of what was known, the Romans controlled it all. You're talking about, when you're thinking, when you're saying the, the known world there, you're talking about from a, a I guess, Daniel-centric point of view as far as like... Yeah, I am. I mean, you can look at, just look at how Daniel described this. Look back in verses 37 and 38 when he began to give the interpretation of the dream. And look at the language that he uses. And, and this is not vague. This is very specific. Verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the strength and the glory, and wherever the sons of men dwell. That's everybody, right? That's all the people. Wherever the sons of men dwell are the uh, birds of the sky or the animals, uh, the beasts of the field. They're all, he says, um, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. So from this perspective, from the biblical perspective, he ruled all that there was. I mean, he, he ruled the whole thing. There was nobody that Nebuchadnezzar did not have influence over. So that's what I mean when he says there's been no dominant world power. And clearly there were people that existed in other lands that are, were not known to the biblical writers at this time. No doubt. I mean, that's definitely true. And, and, but those people didn't have any influence over what was known to the biblical writers and vice versa. So of the people that were known, Nebuchadnezzar ruled them all wherever the sons of men dwell. That's everybody. And while, yeah, he didn't have direct rule over Egypt, but he had pushed Egypt back into their own land and had defeated them. So in a way, he had influence over them because they could not do what they wanted to do. And so and then look on down. When he talks about um, in in verse 39, um, which is very terse, covers 500 years of history, covers two kingdoms. This is Alexander the Great's kingdom is included in this one verse. And he says there, and after you will rise another kingdom inferior to you, that's the Medo-Persian kingdom, lasted 110 years, then another third kingdom of bronze, look, which will rule over the earth. That's everybody. The Greeks influenced everybody. And that's definitely true. They had so much influence, they still 
um, their influence influences us today. So, it, but over the whole earth, it says. So this is what I what I mean by um, there's been no dominant world powers other than those listed in the image that Nebuchadnezzar thought, saw. Now, I'm not so sure that's the way we think about the world and that we don't have that perspective that every power that's ever dominated the world is in this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. There have been no others. And, and sure, after you get past the Roman Empire, there have been people who had um, influence and were the prominent society on the planet, but nobody who dominated all the others. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, before the Babylonian, that obviously it was not written of who had powers in that time. Right. It's like you started when the Israel was defeated, and there was no Israel left as a, as a, as a kingdom. Right. And it was like it started like the Gentile. It's sort of like the Gentile started from there, and Israel sort of. Gone. Well, and yeah, I mean, we clearly had powers before this, right? So why are they not in this image? It's the future, right? Nebuchadnezzar was on his bed wondering what would be. It's all future from the time of Nebuchadnezzar. This is what God is revealing to Nebuchadnezzar. He's not going back and talking about the Orient are talking about the Egyptians or any of those more ancient societies that existed. They clearly did. This is future from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, future starting at about 600 B.C. and going forward. What did God, obviously God put that dream into Nebuchadnezzar. No doubt. came up with a dream. I mean, God put that in him. Right. Why did God start it with Babylon? Why did he start out with Babylon? Is that because of the uh, 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 because of Israel? It was actually it was like a hope for Israel. It seems like since Israel was defeated, there's nothing left. It's like he put in this thing for hope for Israel. Hey, don't worry. There's a plan for you. But I'm going to start with the Gentile. That's where it starts. But there's a hope for you at the end. It seems like that's how I see it. Because the Jewish people was a chosen people from from God. Right. He can't just like crash them and not talk about it. Right, but you, you, uh, no doubt, but you notice nowhere in here and never has been and apparently never will be until the end, is Israel any significant influence? They're not there, right? They never have been a world-dominating power. They never will be a world-dominating power. That's, that's what Nebuchadnezzar's image is all about. And so I don't disagree that there's a hope for Israel, but I don't see it in this image. Go ahead. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, you'll see right. an image of God in his temple. Right. Removing himself. Right. Gradually, step by step from his throne, which he's relenting his, his glory over Israel and Israel is now forsaken. Right. For the moment. For a time being. And what this image is all about is uh, specifically the time of the Gentiles. Right. And uh, eventually Israel will come back into dominance. Uh, right. A thousand year glorious reign. Right. But uh, up until that point in time, well, it's going to be nothing but a, a 
Right, and, and realize that even future yet from Nebuchadnezzar, there is still significance for Israel. I mean, they must remain a nation, must remain a people until the Messiah comes, right? I mean, it's what all the prophecies said. And so they had to be a nation. They may not have been a dominating nation. They may have been possessed by other people, but nevertheless, they had to stay together as a people in order for the Messiah to be able to come and to be presented to the Jews so that they might reject him as a mass nation. And that they, did, they clearly did. But they never dominated anybody. They were always dominated by somebody. Go ahead. Going back to that question about why start with Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. it's true that there were many, many, many kingdoms, but no kingdom that really dominated the world at that time. That's right. Right, and, and that the Assyrians to some degree, but not to the degree of Nebuchadnezzar. You're right. So you see, all right. That's the one perspective that we need to hold on to about the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, is that all the dominating world powers are therein listed. All right, now, I want, a couple other things I want to talk about. Um, there are a lot of theories about this fourth kingdom that's listed in the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Go ahead. What is Constantinople today? Istanbul. It's the name of the city, right? Byzantine Empire as opposed to Roman Empire. All the same thing, though, really. Names change, but the players are the same. All right, so... There, there are, I will tell you, there, there are many theories, and people interpret this different ways. But the vast majority of conservatives say that the fourth kingdom is that of Rome. Okay? And that ultimately, that's the kingdom that is seen in Revelation, so it must be revived in some way. And usually when they talk about this uh, reviving they're talking about Europe, European nations. Now, personally, we talked about this, right? There were 10 barbaric tribes that overran um, Rome. In no way could you say they were nations or powers or had world influence or any of that. They did not. They only had regional influence for a very short time period. So when you talk about the ten nations that existed then and will exist in the future, I don't see that. Now, I could be wrong, but I just don't see it. There were not ten nations in, um, underneath Rome in Europe. There weren't. They didn't exist. <coughs> so I, I have some skepticism toward that. Um, and this is where I went ahead and, and talk about these things. Um, you understand that when you talk about Old Testament prophecy, that often multiple events in the future that are separated by time are seen as happening instantaneously and together. 
right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, probably the most well-known about that is Jesus' reading of the scripture from Isaiah when he was in Nazareth. So let's go take a look at that because I want to make a point here out of this. This is in Luke. In Luke chapter 4, and this is a principle known as progressive revelation, right? You understand what that means? That is, the further you go into the future, the more that is revealed about both the past and the future, right? So this is, this is a principle that I want us to understand. Luke chapter 4, begin in verse 16, so we can get the picture of the scene and he being Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind and to set those who are oppressed, set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. So they want him to speak a word, right? And he began to say to them, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All right, now what's significant about what he read and what he said? I mean, first of all, what's the prophecy? And then what does his fulfillment mean? What's he say the prophecy is specifically? Prophecy is that, well, it is, and that this is the favorable day of the, of the Lord, right? Because these things are going to happen. And Jesus said what? They, today is fulfilled, meaning what? That he is the Messiah, okay? How you could miss what he said is beyond my understanding, but they did. They didn't believe it to be true. Oh, yeah, multiple times. Not, not here, not here. Later, yes, when they try and push him off the cliff, right? Right? And, you know, this is when he stands up and he says, no prophet is welcome in his own city. Then they try and push him off the cliff. Right, and it does. It does. All right, so here Christ is reading this prophecy and saying today it's fulfilled. No big deal, right? We believe that, we understand it. But when you turn over to Isaiah 61 that he was quoting from, then it becomes a little more clear what he's really saying. And again, this is the... Isaiah 61, the very first two verses of the chapter. This is what Christ was quoting. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord... God is upon me because he, the Lord, has anointed me to bring the good news to the afflicted and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's where he stopped, right? And then right behind that you have in the day of vengeance of our God 
to comfort all those who mourn. Did not quote that part. Why not? <laughs> because he wasn't there to fulfill that one, right? Now, there's no way that Isaiah, when he penned those words, realized those were two separate events, right? Stops in mid-verse, mid-sentence. And so there's no way that Isaiah saw these are two separate events. They don't get fulfilled at the same time. As a matter of fact, history shows that they're at least 2,000 years apart. Right? No way Isaiah could have known that. No possibility that he thought that, oh, these are two separate things. No, they go together. And the Jews thought they went together and still do think they go together in their mind. Right now, I'll show you one in Daniel that's just like that. Look over in Daniel chapter 12. Because this is the way that Old Testament prophecy often views what's going to happen in the future. The further you go, the more things that are revealed. Daniel 12. And again, the first two verses of the chapter. Daniel writing, closing out his book, he says, Now at that time, Michael, meaning the angel Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So what is, da- what is Daniel prophesying here? Right? That people who are dead come back to life, right? Some to life eternal, some to life of eternal contemption. Right, and so you have two different groups of people being resurrected. Those who go to everlasting life, those who go to everlasting torment, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying here. Seen as side by side in the prophecy of Daniel. There's no way that Daniel, when he wrote this, thought there would be a separation of these resurrections, right? Oh, we see it in Revelation. You see it in Revelation chapter 20. So turn to Revelation chapter 20. I'm trying to make a point, and you've got the point, but there is, when you talk about Old Testament prophecy, you're talking about events that happen in the history that are seen to be simultaneous or side-by-side that actually are not. That when you get over to the New Testament scriptures, they're expounded more, they're explained more, and you get more details, and you get the separation of time so in Revelation chapter 20 starting in verse 1 then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. 
Then I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or, and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Then he says, blessed are those who participate in the first resurrection. So the resurrection of those to life with God, as opposed to those with eternal contempt by God, are separated by what? By a thousand years in this revelation that was given to John. Right now, we're premillennialist, or at least the church is premillennial. So we believe in a figurative, literal, present rule of God on the earth. Okay, hasn't happened yet. Will happen in the future, and we'll talk about that in good time. Okay, but that's and so we believe this is a literal thousand-year separation. Now, I have a question for you. In both of these examples, in the example. Um, given in Isaiah of the favorable year of the Lord and then the day of vengeance of God and this one given here of the resurrection um, of the saints and the resurrection of uh, those who are eternal uh, condemnation by God from the Old Testament perspective when do those occur? What, what would you call that time space that we're talking about? What's that? Okay, the last days, which if you read uh, the New Testament writers, began at the time of Christ's crucifixion, right? And continue till today. What else do you call that time that we're talking about? All right, the time of the Gentiles would be one way to say it. What's another description of it? The church age would be a good way to speak of it. What's another one? The age of grace in which God is calling to himself people based upon his grace of showing them the truth, right? All of those are appropriate and right terms. From the Old Testament perspective, what's true about the age of grace, the day of the church, this time that we're talking about? It's It's definitely future. There's more. It's hidden. Was not known. This is what the writing of Paul and writing often about the mystery is all about. That this thing called the church, this body of Christ, this day of grace, this age in which we live and people from the Gentiles are called into the body of God was not known, had no understanding whatsoever in Old Testament scripture, not known about. Even the disciples though, they believe yeah, clearly, and, and we should today believe it's coming immediately and always be ready. That's what the parables that Christ gave just before um, his last was all about, was be ready, right? The parable of the vineyard, the parable of the ten virgins, all of those parables that he gave as you walk through the pages of Luke were all about being ready because you don't know when the last day is. Still don't. Go ahead. Just one thing, you know, the separation of the goats and sheep, there's a really good piece of that in Matthew yeah. um, you know, 25, 32. Right. It talks about the sheep and the goats. 
and 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 people sure and people are parsed out and you you're in one group or the other okay so my point is what that I'm trying to make here that from when you read an Old Testament prophecy what's true and you don't know about it and there is no prophecy that was understood in the time of that we're talking about here when Daniel wrote that recognized the church age are the two advents of Christ are the separation of the resurrection of the dead not known so you have to understand that's what Daniel was writing did not have that so where am I going with this Translation, if you will, of Daniel's prophecy, we can assume that that there may be time gap, that that may not be Rome, that it that we not, it hasn't been. Well, let me ask you this: Roman Empire, boom, right? World influence, without question, no doubt about that. I'm not doubting that for a second. But when did the Roman Empire exist? So after basically after the first advent before the second advent of Christ that time which was unknown to the Old Testament prophets right so could it be that the fourth kingdom that we're talking about here has nothing to do with Rome at all we'll get there Okay, we'll get there because that's one of the questions I have for you is who are these kings? We'll talk about it in just a couple minutes. Could it be that because Rome basically ruled after the first advent before the second advent of Christ that Rome is not mentioned at all in this vision of Daniel because that age is not in Old Testament prophecies. It's not there. No, Greek Empire existed starting in about 400 B.C. up until about 30 B.C. Then you have the Romans coming to power. started in about 200 B.C., but really didn't take significant hold until the last of the last century before Christ came. Really only had influence for a few years when you think about the Jewish mind before Christ came. Well, the Roman Empire existed in Rome for about 350 years in total for 1,500 years, right? Right. All of that, almost all of it, is after Christ came, before he comes again. So it existed basically in the time of of grace. Go ahead. Yeah, because it's listed in here, right? It's one of the kingdoms that's listed. Okay, I just want you to realize that just because everybody teaches almost universally that this is talking about Rome, and basically they all agree we're talking about Western Rome, not Eastern Rome, that that doesn't make it right and accurate. And the more I think about it, the more it doesn't make sense. And there are some who believe, even if it is Rome, that the two legs of Rome that you're talking about are not European, 
there's Syria and Egypt are the two legs, which puts you back into the land where the world began, puts you back into the Middle East, puts you back to where Israel is, because those are the people who had most influence over Israel, would be Syria and Egypt. And those very well could be the two legs, and it has nothing to do with Europe whatsoever. You won't find many people who, where you can read that or who teach that. But the more I think about it, the more I study, the more skeptical, skeptical I become about European Rome. Could I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, I'm not disputing what you're saying. No. I think it sounds very reasonable. But I assume that when you... <laughs> that doesn't mean anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. And I assume you're basing that on verse 41 where it talks about the feet and the toes being a mixture of iron and clay. Right. Supposing, and you're assuming because we've got ten toes. Yeah, there's ten kings. Okay, but what if that's not meant to be taken that literally? What if it's just right. a symbolism, a figurative way of speaking about powers that will come into existence? And it, it never says ten. It could but, you know, when you get to the future Revelation, there are clearly ten kings. When you get to Revelation, there are, I mean, they're numbered out. There are ten of them. And so that kind of makes sense. When you talk about the feet, ten toes, ten kings. And it does say kingdoms here, not tribes or, or you know, barbaric people who overrun you. It talks about nations and kingdoms and kings. I'm going to throw another theory in here. Uh, okay. Uh, Revelation, uh, actually even Isaiah talks about it, uh, that the beast, the king, will give the power to the beast. So in other words, all the kings on the earth will give the power to the beast. And it seems like the beast, after somebody talks about the beast, actually it's like, uh, 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 when it talks that he unlocks one of the angels unlocks the key this beast comes out and, and, and it comes out and the, and the Satan gives him the power all his powers to the beast and it's to do a human with this spiritual thing and, and when you go back to Isaiah 24-21 it talks about angels and uh, human kings put together locked up mm -hmm. it seems like there's all a spiritual thing in kingdoms I mean kings on earth mixed together, I mean, I would say, well, together, and they're locked up. Right. And it seems like for that, I mean, the clay and the iron, it seems like there's, iron is, I mean, to me, it's like a spiritual thing, and clay is human, they don't mix. And, and, and the way Revolution talks about it, it's always been that well, way. Well, I look at it this way. Babylon, physical kingdom really existed. Right? Yeah. Greeks, physical kingdom really existed, right? Medo-Persians, physical kingdom really existed. If it is Rome, physical kingdom really existed. I don't think we're talking about spiritual things here. They ultimately result in spiritual things, but why would three or four of the kingdoms be literal, physical things that happen on the earth and one not be? This is the same argument I go to with the parable about Lazarus. You know, the guy who died and he could look across the abyss. Why would all of the parables, other than that one, 
being literal physical things that happen and that one not be. I have real struggle with that. I have the same struggle here with the four kingdoms that are, five kingdoms that are represented with one of them being spiritual and the rest not being. But doesn't it say further down in Daniel that the four kingdom is different from the other kingdoms? Clearly. And, and we'll, we'll get there because Daniel will have his own vision where there are ten kings, right? Specifically stated to be kings. And so we'll talk about it more when we get there. I'm just trying to lay some groundwork for now. Go ahead. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you can go to 916. I'll go to 17 here in a minute. <laughs> the point I wanted to talk about was the 200 million men. It says uh, 916 talks about the, the number of armies and the horsemen is 200 million. Right. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses as those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire, and it talks about brimstone, and what it talks about is the brimstone is yellowish sulfuric rock that is, in, that is common, a common element in the Dead Sea area. Mm-hmm. It goes on to say, and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and we know that the animal image of Babylon, Babylonians, is the lion. Peter Mergen the Medo-Persians is the bear, and the Greek is the leper. Right. So the point is, to me, these things, the brimstone, the head of the horses being like lions, that seems like the epicenter is more along the lines of what you've been talking about. And I've had questions about for some time, that it would be, the epicenter would be that area, which is where the garden originally was. This is the Syrians, this is that whole... Right, and all through the Revelation, the major central city is what? It's Babylon. Babylon, which is not in Europe. Okay, right? It's right where we're talking about. So it's where, in my mind, the epicenter of God's work has always been, and it's never anywhere else in the scriptures. It's always that area. So I don't know why it would shift and change. So I'm just trying to put some straw men out there so we can talk about them as we go forward here. Go ahead, Chris. Well, one thing that um, it seems to be there's a distinction between the iron part of the kingdom that he's talking about and then the iron, the feet with the iron and the clay. I mean, and you and I talked about this last week, but I definitely see that it's not the Roman, I mean, the, the Eastern European, or sorry, Eastern Roman Empire. That was sorry, a Western. definite... That was a definite, right? Okay. I just. <laughs> it's not the, the Roman, uh, like the city of Rome part, but the eastern half of the, the empire, the Roman empire, making sense because if we're going from this was a literal um, Babylonian empire to a literal uh, Medo Persian to a literal Greek, and they all lined up and they were all right after each other, I still think, it's, think that it makes sense for that to then say that that was the, east, the, Rome, the eastern Roman empire, but. Then when it gets into the, the iron and the clay being mixed up, I think that's when it gets where it gets a little bit more ambiguous and stuff. And you could I mean you could almost argue, and I don't think anybody in here would disagree, that, that the Roman civilization became the basis for all of Western civilization with all of these other ideas thrown in, like the clay being mixed with the iron. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
that to me seems to make a lot of sense. It, it does. And, you know, realize that if, if this is accurate, right, and we're not talking about Rome, we're talking about maybe some remnants of Rome, especially talking about Eastern uh, Rome, which would be Syria and Egypt, that this is all yet future and is not historic. It's all yet to come and is not behind us, but yet in front of us. And so that's part of my point here, that I want to open your mind to those kinds of possibilities because nobody, nobody, nobody can say definitely this is what it's talking about. You can't. Daniel didn't have a clue of who he was prophesying about, and, and we don't know for certain today what he was talking about. Tom? Well, I think Chris kind of touched on sort of what, sort of where I was kind of going to, is talking about the fifth kingdom, uh, the divided kingdom, where see, that's what I've always heard too, as far as that being the revived Roman Empire. Sure. Right. Right. And and if it's, I'll tell you where I'm at. Okay. If it is Rome, then it's Eastern Rome, not Western Rome. And it's the Byzantine Empire, not the one that was centered in the city of Rome. You will find almost no one who will agree with you on that. Okay. And they just presume that it's, that it's the city of Rome and the countries around it. Which, and I see no basis for that whatsoever in what Daniel's writing here. And a lot of the writing presumes that the Antichrist will come from Germany. Sure, sure. You know, when you read, because I've read, sure. because I've read Revelation, and it's like incredible how much of it they think is what, German. And there's a guy that I like to listen to. He's, I mean, I really love his teaching, um, who taught in the 60s. And, I mean, it's like it's slam dunk, no question, this is European Rome. I mean, there's just not even any doubt about it. And I kind of wonder. Go ahead. One of the I had stumbled on this website that spoke of this in you know, Daniel 11, where he talked about Greece. But, he, you know, after Greece, he mentions only two of the kingdoms. Right. Yeah, that's it. And the Which is the same, right? When, when you talk about Seleucid, you're talking about the area around Syria, yeah. that, that whole Middle Eastern area that today is Iran and Iraq and Jordan and those, those kind of countries. Right, right. I, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Okay, now, <laughs> okay, I want to go down and actually read a verse. <laughs> Going forward, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we'll go out of it, but yeah, we're there. In verse 44, this is a question you asked just a minute ago. It says, it, you know, um, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Which kings? Because if you read this prophecy, there's only one king, and who is it? Nebuchadnezzar. There are no other kings mentioned in the prophecy of Daniel. So when he says in the, in the days of those kings, who's he talking about? Whoa, whoa, whoa. When does this happen? When do these kings exist? 
He says, he says right here in this verse, you don't have to go anywhere else. He says, when these kings exist, when is it? No, no, no. What does he say in the verse? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So when does this happen? When does it happen? He tells it very plainly. When God sets up a kingdom. On the earth. Right? Because he's talking about physical kingdoms again. So who are these kings? No, no, no. You can say it in general, right? These are the kings who are in power when God sets up his kingdom. Right? Has God set up his kingdom yet? No. So these kings are yet future, right? They don't exist yet unless he comes tomorrow or tonight. It'll be the people who are in power when Christ comes in the second advent, when God sets up his kingdom at the end of the tribulation, right? Not at the beginning, not during. At the end is when God establishes his kingdom. So that's what we're talking, those are who we're talking about. Now the only other place in scripture where you'll find these ten kings is in Revelation. That's the only other, and they're named specifically, not with names, but they're numbered specifically. Look in Revelation 17. And it's not like this is vague. And this will be the same thing that Daniel will see in his vision over in chapter 7. Okay, so this matches what Daniel ultimately sees. In in Revelation 17, beginning in verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. So here's the mind that unlocks this mystery that's given in Revelation. Here's the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth king and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Then here it is. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So they're yet future They will be given kingdoms. They have one purpose. And they give their power and authority to the beast. That's their purpose. That's why these kings exist. That's why they come into power. is so that they can all give their power to the beast. But the beast comes from the abyss. It's not a righteous beast. But here we're talking about kings that have kingdoms. Right? On the earth. Literal places that literally give their power to the Antichrist, to the beast. But the, the beast is not the, beast is not the, the uh, Satan. We, no, no, no. And we'll, and we'll talk about... <laughs> it works this way, okay? The beast is the equivalent in Satan's mind to Christ and God. 
That's the way it works. This is the false Messiah. Okay, that's what the beast is. He mimics, to the best of his ability, the kingdom of God. Now, the beast and and Satan are not intermingled as one, as God and Christ and the Spirit are. But the closest they can come, that's what he's trying to do. That's why the beast is killed and comes back to life. Or at least looks like he's killed and comes back to life. Who, Who was and wasn't and is again is the way that he describes that beast. He's trying to imitate Christ in his death and resurrection. That's always true about Satan. Always trying to imitate and replace God. All right, but here you have ten literal kings. And yeah, I do believe you have ten toes. And so when he talks about toes, he's talking about ten kings. And so that matches what John is given in Revelation. And that doesn't exist yet. Here are kings who don't have any authority but will be given authority in the future. Doesn't say anything about Rome. As you said, the great battle doesn't happen in Europe. It happens in just outside of Israel. In the valley of Megiddo, where the blood flows up to the horse's bridles for 305 miles, right? You know how that imagery that he gives. That's not just imagery. That's real. Go ahead. I know we talked about this 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the seven hills of Rome, right? Sure. I hate to say the word obvious in this class because <laughs> nothing ever is. Uh, <laughs> all obscure. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, it, uh, if you were in the last time I taught Revelation, it will be very different this time. Why? Because it's been 10 years, and 10 years of study have changed my mind on some things. Clearly. And the world is different now than it was 10 years ago. Right? Doesn't mean I'm right. But also, I have as much basis for what I think as I believe the other guys have for what they think. And don't just presume because you've been taught something that is right and is accurate because these are opinions. They're not fact. They're interpretations, not exact quotes, And so this is what men are thinking, right? But I will tell you that in the conservative world that we all hopefully dwell, there are more and more beginning to say, "Mm, not sure we got this right, and beginning to look toward the Middle East as opposed to looking toward Europe. There are more and more and more because it makes more and more sense in the world that we live for one reason, but current events don't make it true. Okay, that's what happened to the guys who interpreted it as Europe. Current events made it obvious, right? Not so much. This is why the amillennialists, after you have World War I and World War II, become more quiet. Because is the world really getting to be a better place? Not so much. Go ahead, Annie. Uh, one of the things that struck me since I was a little kid in history class and geography which was just a couple weeks ago. Just a couple weeks ago. Right. Yeah, like almost 60. <laughs> but anyway. Um, well, weeks or years, right, in Daniel? Okay. Well, in Daniel, the weeks or years, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, the thing, if you look at just a world map, yeah. and you think about um, the history of flows of kingdoms, mm -hmm. the keyhole, if you will, of the door to God is right there. From Babylon to the river of Egypt is sure. God's covenant that that's what Israel would be. Right. Is Babylon mm -hmm. the horror, the prostitute, being directly north of the kingdom God promised his people? Mm -hmm. And Egypt, the Ptolemaic Empire, which, by the way, Ptolemies came from Greece. Right. And they ruled Egypt and they grew. So they're really part of the Greco. Right. And even Roman, because then they took that out. But the middle part that everybody had to go through to get to each other. And still do. And yeah. still do with right. trade. And now with the oil industry. And now with... Um, it's all centered right there. It is, but it's even more than that. If you take a look at what's going on under the earth, the rift is there. The one that makes up, for example, the sea that the Israelites had to cross. Mm -hmm. And it goes all the way down to Africa. I'm absolutely convinced you're right. Well, I, no, I'm not there. It never made 100% other than the seven hills of Rome. If I get focusing on that. Yeah. And that... The Catholic Church had to be this prostitute, of course. Right. So the Protestant thing, they went in that path. But maybe not. But if you think northern and southern, and the German idea, the Teutonic Knights coming right. in, sure. the Tartars, when my mother's maiden name was Tatarsky, which means son of a Tartar. Okay. But anyway, these are the invading armies from the east. What about the Orient? Right. My goodness, we, how many billions of people are in India and China alone? Yeah, three. And this... Yeah, you're talking half the world population. And this egocentric idea that Rome and Western civilization is the middle of the world, no. Right. It hasn't been, it still isn't today. And the thing about Revelation, too, it talks about how many people die. Most. Two-thirds of the world's population wiped out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the ten kings that come about are the ones who scramble to get power after this devastation of humankind. So who are they? We don't know yet. We don't even know where all the deaths are going to Yeah. My, my whole point is that maybe not Rome. Maybe not. Well, and maybe, mountains, and maybe the fourth kingdom is still yet future. Seven different mountains. Yeah. Could I, I, I'm not well, going to have to be Rome. No, no. I'm really not trying to give you a bad time. No, I have no but problem I with this. Problem. <laughs> okay. I want you to get, help me with it. Uh-huh. Where right. it starts out in the time of those kings. Right. The word those right. indicates an entity. Well, it does in English. I'm not sure it's there in the original language. Okay. And maybe the NIV is the only one that uses it. No, no, NAS does. But if there is an entity, then and so does ESV. it's not future, it's past. Well, that's the way English works, yes. <laughs> Daniel is just talking about what is going to happen. It's all future for Daniel, Right. Where he's sitting, it's all future. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't talk about kings. He talks about kingdoms. Don't you have a king right, with a kingdom? It does have the innocent of the toes, though. Yeah. It does. Maybe. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying it's not as clear as we want it to be. And I'm not so sure it's Rome. Maybe it's yet the kingdoms that are set up in the time of the Antichrist. And by the way, Babylon is the city, is the center of it all, but it's the beast who destroys Babylon, not God. He turns against his own because he wants... 
Right, because he wants to be God. So he turns against the people who have supported him and put him in power. But that's what verse 45 says. Well, sort of. It doesn't just beat on right. the clay and the iron. It well, well, and realize what we're talking about. We will talk about 44 and 45, God willing, next week. Okay? Is the, the rock that was hewn without hands is what crushes all of these. And by the way, it says at the same time. Right? So we'll talk about this more. I just wanted to probe your mind a little bit. Yeah. Fourth kingdom is the iron and mixed with clay. Iron. Right. There are only five. Okay. Right. Are you saying that you think that it's possible in the future that a kingdom with the same scope of power, similar to that of Nebuchadnezzar, would be in that same general area? The Antichrist will rule it all. Right. This is and in the mind of those people we fear, this is what's known as caliphate. Caliphate, where they're all united together, right? That's where we're headed. That's the declared purpose of ISIS is to form caliphate. Where everybody's united together. Right? I mean that's that's what they've stated. It's not I'm making that up, that's what they've said. Go ahead. Sure. Right. And after the 52 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, right. the Romans were the ones that destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Right. So, ergo, the prince. Right. Well, and clearly, we'll walk through every one of these verses and talk about them later. <laughs> right. Go ahead. I have a on that very verse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <coughs> were made up of people that were not from Rome, right. but from every land other than Rome. Mm-hmm. And that would have been all the land around Israel. Yeah, I mean, they yes, they did not come from Rome to capture them. They were already there. Go ahead. Since we get most of our commentary and uh, <laughs> analysis of the Bible the whole way back from Rome, from the Catholic Church, it's not surprising Right, well, you, you can read that. I have read some of that. And I've read some of the guys who, who you would disagree with. You need to, right? Because you need to have broader perspective than just the narrow slice that we have. Because you need to know what other people say. And, and here's, you know, what's the support for the Islamics? Well, Ishmael had 12 sons also. But they're named in the scriptures. And so that's why they believe they've replaced Israel. They have 12 tribes also. Not, you know, this is just more counterfeiting of the real by the false. Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, that's why they believe that. It is counterfeiting. If you look at the, the covenant, the covenant was given to Isaac. Right. It was not Abraham, Isaac, right. and Jacob. I mean, was... And specifically stated not to be to Ishmael. Exactly. Right? So, I mean, anyway. You see where we're headed, right? This will be fun, right? Open your mind, right? Not to just anything, 
but to be guided by the Spirit to understand the truth. Right? That's what we're after. Doesn't mean we'll get it all right, but don't also just take hook and line and sinker of things that you've been taught as being accurate. They could be wrong. Right? Could be. Thanks for your time.